We've been in Hebrews, I don't know if you knew this, and, uh, and we've termed the book of Hebrews the letter of better, and tonight I would like to persuade you that a relationship with the Lord Jesus is better than money. Listen, I, I got to get your attention. That statement was just made by a Jewish guy. I'm telling you. He is better than all the money in the world. Uh, I hope you're persuaded of that, and if not, maybe the writer of Hebrews will, will persuade you of it this evening. Uh, we're in chapter 13. We've managed to uh, get through 12 chapters. I mentioned to you they are categorically different than this final chapter. They uh, tell us what's true, and chapter 13 says, now this is what you are to do. Verse 12, this is what's true of you. Chapter 13, here's your response. And it started out uh, with the theme verse of the final chapter, verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. If the first 12 chapters are true of you, if you're an heir of all those far better things by your faith in Christ Jesus, then to you to whom much is given, much is required. A response is required, and here it is. Let love of the brethren continue. How, we say. Verse 2 says, show hospitality. Verse 3 said, remember the prisoners, especially those fellow Christians imprisoned for the faith. And then we get to verse 4, and here's what it says. Marriage is to be held in honor among all men, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. How better to let love of the brethren continue than to let it continue in marriage between believers? That's how verse 4 fits into the subject. It's not random. Show love, believer to believer, in the bond of marriage. This verse is about physical relations, and it sets bounds on God-given human sexuality. It is a gift, and it is a good thing, but it must be bounded by covenant marriage. It cannot take place outside of it, neither before nor beyond it. It's holy. Let not the marriage bed be undefiled. This is so serious that to violate God's standard in marriage is to bring upon oneself judgment. It says right there, folks, everybody's talking about marriage today. Our Supreme Court is about to weigh in on it. They will come up with their decision in June. They're voting on two pieces of legislation, one, Proposition 8 out of California about gay marriage, and the other, DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act, is it constitutional to define marriage in the traditional sense as being between uh, one man and one woman irreversibly bound together? Everybody is talking about it, and I'm, I'm afraid we ought to as well. And because there's so much to be said about it, I'm not going to do it tonight. Uh, I'm going to skip over verse 4 so as to devote weeks and weeks to it, at the conclusion of chapter 13. So I'm going to start a new series, Lord willing, May 15th. I wasn't going to do this, but as I read about all uh, the redefinition of marriage today, and many Christians, even in high places, it seems to me, are 
are joining with the culture instead of being salt and light in it and are really compromising on the definition of marriage. And so I want to do a series uh, called Unholy Ideas About Holy Matrimony. And I want to address questions like, who is marriage for? Who can get in on it? Who can get out of it? What is its purpose? Who came up with the idea? And a question many people are asking today, why do we need this archaic institution at all? Why can't we just live together? That's a phenomenon really picking up steam in our generation. Are your ideas about marriage, are they holy or unholy? I want to challenge you to listen in so as to see whether your thinking, mine, are consistent with God's thinking on the subject. He has a lot to say about it. There's an impetus given today to be married to one, but to have sexual relations with as many partners as you want. It's picking up steam. There's impetus being given today to polygamous relationships. Why not? If love is the issue, why do you have to reserve your love only for one? Why can't you have many partners whom you, whom you love? There's a lot of, a lot of uh, momentum today to think of marriage no longer in terms of permanence, but in terms of temporariness. Many people are entering into the bond, not so much vowing this, till death do us part, but till love do us part. And so if my love for you has ceased to be, there's no sense being unhappy. I have a right to be happy. So there's the temporariness of marriage. Is that right? Is it wrong? Let's see what happens. So that'll be May 15th, if you dare show up. I don't think it's a pleasant topic to tell you the truth, but good night. Everyone has something to say about it. And I think, I think uh, we have a lot of audacity to refashion what God came up with. Who do we think we are? And if our country, if our legislators, if our Supreme Court thinks we will remain unjudged for tampering with what God instituted, we are wrong about it. So I'm not uh, uh, avoiding the issues of verse 4. I'm so taken up by it and the uh, uh, relevance of it. I want to devote uh, many weeks to it. So that's what we'll do again, Lord willing, May 15th. For now, therefore, please uh, skip verse 4 and move down with me to verse 5. Let your way of life be free from money. Does your translation say that? No, see, free from the love of money, because money is amoral, it's a neutral, it's a good thing, it's a vehicle, it's an instrument, nothing wrong with it, but love of money is a problem. What's the problem? If someone loves money, it gets in the way of the number one exhortation of verse 1, which says, let love of the brethren continue. If instead of loving the brethren, you're loving your money, ah, oil and water, the two are incompatible. Why is loving your money incompatible with loving the brethren? Because if you love your money so much, you'll just accumulate it, maybe even count it, but you won't think of sharing it. 
But that's what we're called to do, especially with regard to members of the household of the faith, needy other brethren, or brethren in missions, and so on and so forth. So, so, so love of money is inconsistent with the primary exhortation of this chapter, love of the brethren. Not only that, it gets in the way of love for God because if you have accumulated sufficient material and or financial holdings, you may run the risk of making it the basis of your security, which would be idolatry because only Jesus is the rock. Do you know how quickly that pile of money could go? Are you kidding? I mean, if our government has its way, it's going to be quicker even than that, for crying out loud. It's a very false God. It can get in the way of sheer and utter dependence on the only true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you assume, if I assume that what I have materially and financially is all for ourselves, then we may be misusing what we have. It's not We're to be stewards of it, not possessors of it. But what if you work hard, have done well, have had good fortune, run into good opportunities uh, through which you find yourself being wealthy? You're a rich Christian. Is that a problem? Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? The problem is not the amount of money you have. It may be your attitude towards money that's being addressed here. It's not the volume of funds that's the problem. It's the attachment you may have. So Psalm 62, verse 10, listen to this. If riches increase, if they do for you, wonderful, thank God. That's a glorious thing. God is entrusting you with wealth, wonderful. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Ah, See, now that's the rub. That's why many of us cannot be entrusted with much wealth. It's too tempting. We would set our heart upon it, you see. So our lifestyle is supposed to be characterized by freedom from the love of money. In other words, though you can have it, and you can have plenty of it, if the Lord so leads, the danger is that it must not ever have you. It must not have you. What then is the option? Well, the very next phrase in the verse tells us, it says, being content with what you have. Let your life be free from the love of money. What's the alternative? Be content with what you have. Ooh, so I read this. And then I thought, ah, this doesn't work. Because do you know there are thousands of Christians around the world who have nothing They would say, God, I really like this. I'd be pleased to be content with what I have, but I have nothing. How could I be content with nothing? Materially, financially, I'm impoverished. That's almost the normative experience of masses of fellow Christians around the world. It's hard for us to relate to, but it's the norm for many people. So this exhortation, be content with what material wealth you have. Oh, my goodness. They say, great. Give me some. I don't have any material wealth. And then I realized, oh, no, this exhortation is not to be content with the amount of finances, large or small, that you may have. No, no, no. It's to be content with what every Christian, regardless of one's financial situation, has. And what is that? 
Read the next phrase. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's what we are to be content with. Oh, no. God is not saying be content with impoverishment and all the rest. Oh, no. He's not saying compare your capital to that of another. Oh, no. He's saying all of you consistently above the board have what you need most. Me. Be content with me. You may not have much of what the world has to offer financially or materially, but you have me. And if you have me, you are rich. Be content with me. For he himself has said, and this invokes an Old Testament verse, but to emphasize the fact that God is behind it, the writer of Hebrews says editorially, for he, God himself, said this, which you find in the Old Testament. He himself has said, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Money can come and go. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is addressing persecuted Hebrew Christians at this time. They were use, losing their jobs, their homes, their livelihood for knowing Christ Jesus. Persecution can cause our finances and our employment and our income earning potential to wane. So could inflation. So could indebtedness, the likes of which I've never seen in this country before. All of these things can devalue our stockpile of funds. But says God, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. In fact, in fact, this is such an impossibility. I have to tell you how this actually reads. You, you know, the language in, this, in which this came to us originally was Greek. So our translators, and I'll bet everyone here has a really good translation of the Bible, though it may be different, you know. I'm not one of those guys who weighs in too strongly on, you should have this translation, not that one. You know, read a good translation. So King James, come on, magnificent. New King James, wonderful. NIV, New American Standard, English Standard. Read the Bible. Just read the Bible. But I'm going to tell you, all of those are English translations of the Greek. And so all the translators, excellent, they have in some cases smoothed out the Greek because the Greek doesn't exactly translate directly to English. It wouldn't make sense. This is an example. So where we read, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, this is what it actually sounds like in the Greek. I will never, never desert you. Line one, two negatives. I will never, never desert you. Line two, nor will I... Never, never, never forsake you. Two lines, two negatives in the first, three in the second, a total of five in two lines. You know what God is saying? You may lose material wealth, employment, wage earning capacity, and all the rest, but I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with the permanence of the relationship because you cannot find contentment in anything else. Everything else is fleeting. Everything else is shaky and unsettled. 
Don't make your security, finances, stocks, land holdings, employment, even health. Don't do that. But, oh, God, what if I forfeit those things? What, be content with what you have. You have the best. You have me. And nothing could dissuade me from permanently being with you. I tell you, this verse just, I'm going to be able to get out of bed every day from now on. No matter what the news is saying, no matter who's at war, no matter what's going on, five nevers. I will never, never desert you. I will never, never, never. I will never under any circumstances ever leave you. Now, in light of what the Lord has so strikingly said, we ought to say something back to him. And that's what happens in verse 6. So that we confidently say, he himself has said, I will never desert you or forsake you. Now we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Mm. That's our response to what God has just said. You know, many think of the Lord as somebody else's helper. Don't do that. If Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, don't you know he's your personal helper? That little two Letter, personal pronoun, my, is significant. My separates truly reborn people who have a relationship with Christ from those who are merely religious. I love our Father who art in heaven. Don't misunderstand. I love the collective body of Christ, but the distinctive of Christianity is the word my, my helper. The Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What shall man do to me? Now, this is a second quotation from a second verse in the Old Testament. This one is from Psalm 118, verses 5 and 6. The psalmist wrote, I'll quote it to you, from my distress, the psalmist was in trouble. Psalm 118, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and sent me in a large place. What is a large place? It's a place where you're not confined, where you can stretch out, where you're not put in a box, where you're not shackled, where you're not burdened, where you're not put upon, where you're not groveling, where you're not crawling, where you're not sneaking, where you're not deprived, where you're not threatened, where you're not limited. It is a large, a large place is a safe place, an abundant place, a secure place. I cried out in my distress, the psalmist said. We don't know what the specific distress is. Maybe it was one of these four categories that we cried out to the Lord about just a few moments ago. He cried out, and he said, the Lord answered, and he sent me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I, I, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 118 here in Hebrews chapter 13 for us. So what, what was your cry of distress earlier? What was it about? Was it marital, physical, financial, interpersonal? I mean, what, what was it? And how does the Lord intend to answer? By bringing you and me into a large place. Well, what is that large place? Bear with me here. 
Though everyone earlier on petitioned God very precisely and specifically with regard to what's on your heart. If you think about this, I think what's really on your heart and mine is this intense interest in a relationship with someone who will come to us and never go away. At the root of everything we pray, really, is this intense hunger for a relationship that will not let us go. Is there someone who will hear me? Is there someone who cares enough to speak to me, to guide me, to lead me? Is there someone who will come to me when I'm at my worst and stay with me, never to abandon me, never to depart? That's what's really at the root of every cry of distress, if you think about it. Every one of us is saying, I can make it through cancer. I can make it through marital upheaval. I can make it through unemployment. It's just this terrible, overwhelming sense of being alone in it that I cannot bear. I can't stand being responsible for it all myself. If only there was someone who would wrap his arms around me and say, I'll take responsibility for you. I'll take care of you. I hear your heart cry. I know you, your need. Will you be content with the fact that I am with you and that I'll never leave you or forsake you? And I happen to be the Most High God. Isn't that enough? Will that be enough? What if you had satisfaction of all those other needs, medical and financial and marital and all the rest, but did not have me? I wonder he, if he's saying, would you really be rich? That would be the most grotesque impoverishment. You'd have it all that the world has to offer, but you would have nothing that satisfies the real desire of your heart. For you have been created not for money, not for stuff, You've been created for communion with the Creator. And if the Creator were to say, you can have it, invite it, ask me, come to me, my way, be connected by faith, yield to me, wouldn't that be enough? I'll never, never desert you. Do you get it? I'll never, never, never forsake you. That's the large place. That's the large place. The large place is Jesus, the large place, the safe place, the secure place, the place where we don't have to be weighted down, bowed down, grovel, the place where we could stand as a son or as a daughter, being welcomed to the throne of grace, the place where we can run when we're assailed by the throes of life, the refuge who will not let us go. Jesus is the large. It's not a new job. It's not the lottery. It's not a new marital partner because I don't like the one I'm with. It's not compulsive buying. It's not gambling. It's not drink. Jesus is the large place because all of those leave. They, you know what money is? A terrible God. You know what money says? I'm going to give you, if you worship me, a smidgen of satisfaction. That'll get you hooked. And in order to taste more satisfaction, I'm going to obligate you to accumulate more and more of me. But you'll never be satisfied. You'll never have enough. That's not the large place. 
That's the choking place. That's the narrow place. That's the limiting place. Jesus is the large place. I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Ooh. But I read that, and I thought, wait a second. What shall man do to me? Plenty. Are you kidding me? You know what other people could do to you? Maybe you've done this. People can hurt you terribly. People could abuse you. People could reject you. People could lie to you, deceive you, defraud you, betray you. People could exploit you. People could respond to you uh, unjustly. People could abandon you. You know what people sometimes do to Christian people? They torture them. People could kill you. So I don't get this verse. (laughs) What? What shall man do to me? And then I figured it out. All those things could take place at the hands of other humans, for sure. Man could do lots to me. But no man can make God leave me. (laughs) Nor you. No circumstance. No person can persuade God to leave you. I will never, never desert you. No, I will never, never, never forsake you. (laughs) What can man do to me? What can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing, nothing, nothing. You could be separated from health, You could be separate. Ray's lovely wife passed away about five years ago. She was a doll, Ray. I did the service. It's not, and there's Vi, her wonderful husband. I did the service, passed away. How long ago, Vi? 17 months. It's hard. Separation. But nothing can separate you. Never, never, never. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He's our hope. He's our hope. I tell you, the never-ending relationship with the Lord Jesus is better than money. (laughs) And I'll tell you something else. Absolutely everybody, Christian and non-Christian, is going to be persuaded of this shortly before death. It's wisest to be persuaded uh, of the fact that uh, Jesus is better than money long before death. But everyone will be persuaded of the limitations of money (laughs) shortly before death. See, uh, at some point, even if it is only at the point of death, money will desert you. But God will not. Money does not go with you into the next place but Jesus does. Money cannot even get you into the next place, but Jesus can. See? So today many are seeking Christians from the Lord Jesus uh, a purely material blessing. Health, wealth. Don't misunderstand. There's no shame beseeching the Lord about all those needs. But if uh, if, if if your primary focus, purpose, 
for following the Lord Jesus is, uh, is health and wealth. That kind of stuff. Um, you're going to be really, really, really uh, disappointed. <laughs> because it can't satisfy. Only he can. We do not seek Jesus for those particular blessings. We seek Jesus because if we do, he can be found. And then we will have the someone we all crave to have who will come to us and never go. That's what we really are seeking. Only God can satisfy our hearts. He's better than money. He can satisfy the emptiness of our hearts. He can satisfy, speaking of money, there's a debt of a different kind. He and, and he alone can satisfy the debt we owe God, for we have sinned against him. Uh, he can satisfy the hopelessness we feel. He can satisfy the lack of purpose we struggle with. He can satisfy the love we need. And we are just looking for love in all the wrong places, aren't we? For crying out loud. Jesus said, I, 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 I love you just the way you are. Can you not find contentment in that? I'll come to you and I'll never depart from you. There are many, many people who, because of their love of money, have opted for it rather than for God. And money, oh my goodness, is, as I mentioned, a very, very demanding God. But our world has bought into the myth that riches and contentment go together. They're almost synonymous, riches and contentment. And yet you know of as many very wealthy people as I do who boast large bank accounts but who are not content at all. They always want more. And then they live in dread of losing what they have. There was a philosopher named Immanuel Kant who made this very profound statement. He said, give a man everything he wants and at that moment, everything will not be everything. Jesus is everything. He's everything. One time the Lord Jesus told a story. We call it a parable. It's found in Luke chapter 12. You're familiar with it. He said, here's the story. Uh, the land of a rich man was really productive. The rich man began to think, my goodness, said he, what am I going to do? I have so many crops. I'm running out of storage room. He said, oh, I got it. I'm going to tear down my old barns. I'll build bigger, newer ones. I'll store all my stuff in there. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods, lots of stuff, laid up for many years to come. you got nothing to worry about. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's quite bewildering that we humans more often are prone to seek security in far less secure things than Jesus, who is the rock, the unchangeable rock. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of a guy named Charles Spurgeon? Oh, my goodness. Giant. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was giving, uh, in 1854, uh, a sermon 
on Christmas Eve. It was from Isaiah chapter 7. The theme was God with us. We have the text of the sermon, and some wonderfully creative people have taken the text, and an actor uh, has um, uh, presented the text of Charles Spurgeon's 1854 Christmas Eve sermon. It's about God with us. It's very, very meaningful. It relates to what we're talking about. Therefore, I want to ask you if you would give your attention to the words and to the sights on this particular video. God with us. Take a look. We can be content, can we not? With what? No, not with what we have, with who we have. We can be content with he who has us, can we not? And he who has us says, I have you forever, for I will never, never forsake you. I will never, never, never desert you. That's enough, no? Lord Jesus, you are more than enough. You made us for communion with you, a mind to think about you, a heart to love you, and a will to obey you. No other created thing, no inanimate object, no animal has those capacities you've distinguished us, has the crown of your creation. You've made us not for stuff. You made us for you. You are enough. And Lord Jesus, our hearts go out to those even here tonight who haven't established a connection with you. But oh God, your heart for that one, those two, or more, far exceeds ours. You said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit, not one person would leave here tonight without establishing a connection with you. It's through the cross. For you, Lord Jesus, said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and nobody can come to the Father but by me. You've made it so simple. Are we stumbling over it because it's so simple? Let not that be the case tonight. Let each of us, oh God, come to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. What a mediator you are, Lord Jesus. What we just saw was not a message for Christmas time. It's a message for every time. For the longing of our hearts is for a relationship with you, giver of life, who has given us life. We've been made for you. It's no wonder why we're so empty when we are apart from you. Oh, God, thank you for giving us yourself. You are more than enough. And in the relationship, we declare once again, we will find contentment. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.